Uh, Open your Bibles, if you have them, Gospel of John, chapter 16. We'll be in verses 16 and continuing through the end of the chapter. 16, verse 16, and continuing through verse 33. Uh, John's Gospel, we've been there for a while. We've been talking about the life and the ministry of Jesus. You know what I love about John's Gospel is if you want to get to know Jesus, read the Gospel of John. You know, often people want to know, where do I start in the Bible? Genesis. Do I start in Matthew? Do I begin in Revelation? Maybe go from the, the end to the beginning. You possibly can, but what a wonderful book to begin in the Gospel of John to discover who Jesus is and to place your faith in him. The Gospel of John is a great book as well if you're a believer and you just need to be reminded of the truth of who Jesus is. I mean, throughout John's gospel, we've talked about seven I am statements that remind us again and again that Jesus is not just a man. He's not just a prophet. He's the Christ. He is the Son of God, as John invites us to believe in chapter 20, verse 31. And as we continue to talk about the life and the ministry of Jesus, we find ourselves in chapter 16. And by the time we get to chapter 16, Jesus is not just in the final week of his life, which takes up about half the book, but he's spending the final hours that he has with them. The current conversation that he's had has been going on for the past few chapters. It began in chapter 13. It's often referred to as the upper room discourse. It's the night before Jesus' crucifixion, and as he spends time with his disciples, he's instructing them. He's encouraging them. He's preparing them because of what lies ahead of them. In the next 24 to 48 hours, in the next days and weeks and even months ahead, their lives are going to radically change. The past three years, they've been walking with Jesus. They've been talking with Jesus. But soon, Jesus is not just going to die and rise. He's going to leave. After rising from the dead, after 40 days on earth and instructing his disciples, he's going to ascend to heaven, and they need to prepare for what's going to happen to Jesus, but they also need to prepare for what's going to happen to them. You see, Jesus is going to die, he's going to rise, he's going to leave, but he tells them that the reward of the righteous, the reward of those who are going to follow him is not prosperity. He doesn't promise them health, wealth, and happiness. He doesn't tell them, listen, your bank accounts are going to be full. He doesn't tell them, listen, your health is going to be perfect. He promises the reward of the righteous is that of suffering. Back in John chapter 15, Jesus said in verse 18, if they hated me, know that they hated me, hated, if they hated, if they hate you, excuse me, know that they hated me first. In verse 20, he goes on to say, know that a servant isn't greater than his master. If you're connected to me, Jesus says, if you hold to the principles and the truths of what my word declares, if they hated me, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So he tells them, this is what lies ahead of you. But as we read about, as he prepares them, he gives them, while they cannot fully understand everything that's about to happen in the next hours, in the next days, in the next months, there are certain promises that they can understand and certain promises that they can hold on to in that time of adversity, in that time of suffering. Even if these, these apostles, these disciples should lose their lives, these are the promises that they can hold on to that we're going to talk about in chapter 16, verses 16 to 33. 
And I want you to know that while these disciples couldn't fully understand what was happening to Jesus and what would happen to them in the days, months, and years ahead, they could understand these promises. And that's the same encouragement for us. Because there are times when we face adversities that are beyond what we ever could imagine. There are times when we face hardships and intense suffering. And in those moments where we don't understand, God, why are you allowing this to happen? God, how could you allow this to happen to me? In those moments, you may not fully understand why God allows it, but you can hold on to these promises. You can stand on these promises because these are the promises that will get you through. We're going to read about three of them. John chapter 16, beginning in verse 16. It reads this way. A little while, and you will not see me. Again, a little while, and you will see me, because I go to the Father. Then some of his disciples said among themselves, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, what is this that he says? A little while. We do not know what he is saying. Now Jesus knew that they desired to ask him, and he said to them, Are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said? A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me. Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. And you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come, but as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. And in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. But the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you, tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask in my name, and uh, I do not say to you that I shall pray to the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I have come forth from God. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world again. I leave the world and go to the Father. His disciples said to him, See, now you are speaking plainly and using no figurative speech. Now we sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Indeed. The hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. John chapter 16, verses 16 to 33, give us three incredible promises we can hold on to. Three incredible promises we can stand upon. Three incredible promises that we need in, in those times of adversity when we don't understand everything or the circumstances going on, but we can hold on to the promises of God because of our relationship with Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Who is Jesus in light of the promises that he gives? After all, that's the question that we've been asking in John's gospel. Jesus is the one who promises fullness of joy. 
Jesus is the one who transforms sorrow and suffering into fullness of joy. Jesus begins by, as he continues to prepare his disciples, instruct his disciples, encourage his disciples, he he gives them a prediction in light of this promise of fullness of, of joy. Verse 16, he says, a little while you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me because I go to the Father. Now in the next couple verses, the disciples are completely confused. Now if you're reading this, especially for the first time, you're probably confused. Jesus, what is in the world is Jesus talking about here? A little while and you will not see me. A little while and you will see me because I go to the Father. Now this could be referring to a couple of things. Does this little while refer to his ascension and then a little while more refer to his second coming when we will see him again? Well, in light of the context, it probably refers first to his crucifixion. A little while... And you will not see me. Jesus is with his disciples. He's about to head to the Garden of Gethsemane where he is going to be betrayed. He's going to stand trial. He's going to be falsely accused. After he is falsely accused, he is going to be condemned to death on a Roman cross. And as Jesus is condemned to death on a Roman cross, after six hours hanging on that cross, He will not have his life taken from him. He will give up his life. He will surrender his spirit into the hands of the Father. And in that moment, they will see him no more. So he says, in a little while, this is a little while, this is the night before his crucifixion, you will not see me. That prediction's a negative one, at least in the minds of these disciples, because they don't fully understand the significance of the crucifixion. We know it. Jesus is going to die a substitutionary death on their behalf and our behalf that all who trust in him as their Savior and Lord can have eternal life, can have the forgiveness of sins. But in this moment, he says, in a little while, you will not see me anymore because I'm about to die on a Roman cross. And then he says, here's the good news, a little while and you will see me. Why? Because three days later, Christ got up from the grave. He rises in newness of life. Why did Jesus die and rise? Not so he would stay with his disciples, but so that he would go to the Father, ascend to heaven, leaving his disciples with a mission to go. In the power of the Holy Spirit, to be witnesses, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus predicts that in a moment he's going to die, In a moment, he's going to rise. And in a moment, not too long after that, he's going to ascend to the right hand of the Father. And he has already told them throughout chapters 13 to 16, I'm about to depart from you. In chapter 16, we learn their hearts are full of sorrow. He acknowledges their sorrow. They don't fully understand what's going on. And we hear in response to his prediction, their confusion. Verses 17 to 18, uh, they talk with one another. They don't ask Jesus They talk to one another. They say, what in the world does he mean when he says, a little while and you will not see me? What does he mean when he says, a little while and you will see me? What does he mean, verse 17, 16, when he says, because I go to the Father? Then they turn to each other and they come to this conclusion. You ever read the Bible and and you come to that same I don't know what he means by this. I want you to understand this about the disciples. For us, maybe some of us, we know the whole picture. We see the big picture. We know why Christ came and what he accomplished. But if you're going through the Gospel of John for the first time, you're you're confused as, as much as everyone else. 
You take a look at this text. What in the world is Jesus talking about? But you have to understand this. These disciples have no idea. And the reason is, even though they've been walking and talking with Jesus for the past three years, even though they have some knowledge, they are not full of understanding in light of what is about to happen. Not until after all of this takes place, after his death, his burial, and his resurrection, are they going to fully understand everything. And when they are filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, then they will fully understand what's going on and go about the mission and look back and see the significance of the cross. See the significance of the resurrection and walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, it's to your advantage that I leave. We saw that last time in the first 15 verses. So that the helper can come the Holy Spirit. How are you to be effective witnesses to the ends of the earth? The Holy Spirit who will indwell you, empower you, and enable you. Not only is he your helper, he is the spirit of truth. These disciples don't understand everything that's going on, but while they cannot understand fully, Jesus gives them promises they can hold on to. And whenever you go through adversity, and hardship, and troubles, and you say, God, I know you're sovereign. I know you're in control, but I don't understand. I've got more questions than I have answers. You may not ever understand fully why God allows some things to happen, but you can hold on to these promises, and you can stand upon them in those times of great adversity. And so we see the confusion in response to the prediction. And and then Jesus gives an explanation, but it's really not the explanation they're looking for. Like Jesus doesn't fully explain to them the significance of everything. Why? Because they can't fully grasp it. It's kind of like if you've ever lost a loved one in the family and you have a young child who's with you. You ever try to explain to a young child, a three-year-old, a four-year-old, even a five-year-old, what has happened when your loved one has passed away. You ever try that? That's hard. You talk to them, and there's only so much they can understand, and so you try to explain as much as you can. And Jesus, that's what he's doing with them. He's explaining to them as much as they can understand. They will not fully grasp it until later. And you ever told a child, a three-year-old, a four-year-old, or a five-year-old about a loved one who's passed? There are certain promises that they can hold on to, and I think they understand them. And one of those promises is, now that this individual has died, it's, it's not a forever goodbye. It's a, a see you later. And even a child can understand that. Because they know Jesus, they're going to spend eternity with God and his people. And that's our hope as well. What a wonderful thing to tell a child, hey, his death or her death is, a, is not a period. It's a, it's a comma. There are certain promises that you can hold on to that even a child can understand. And Jesus wants to give them the first promise, which is the promise of fullness of joy. And he doesn't give them the explanation they want. He gives them the, the encouragement they need. Here's the encouragement they need, and here's the encouragement you and I need. Verse 18, first he, he acknowledges their need. He acknowledges their lack of understanding as they they talk among themselves. It it says in verse 19, now Jesus knew that they desired to ask him, and he said to them, are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Aren't you thankful that even when you don't understand, and maybe even you're sitting in a Bible study, or or a Sunday morning service, or you're just in a devotional time, and and you open up the word, and it's just confusing, 
you open up the, the Bible, maybe you're going through a hard time in your life and you don't understand everything that's, that's going on, just know that you have a God who knows that you're struggling, who, who acknowledges the, the confusion and the lack of understanding in your heart. Why aren't you thankful that we serve an awesome God who's all-powerful, all-knowing, He is sovereign, and He acknowledges what's on their hearts? Even in the first 15 verses when he says, I'm going to depart from you. And then he says, and then, and then he acknowledges the sorrow in their hearts. He could have said, don't you understand this for your good? I'm about to die for your sins. There's no need to be sorrowful. No, he, he acknowledges their sorrow. He meets them where they're at. He understands their lack of understanding. And he acknowledges it. In those times when you say, God, I don't know why. And I'm struggling right now to trust you. He knows your heart. And his desire is not that your faith would be shaken, but that your faith would be strengthened in light of these truths. So he encourages them acknowledging what's in their hearts, their confusion, their lack of understanding. Secondly, he encourages them with the assurance of his word. The assurance of his word. He says, most assuredly, all throughout John's gospel, Jesus says this again and again. Whenever he introduces the truth of his word, he says most assuredly, truly, truly, I say to you, when I speak, Jesus says, I speak with the authority of heaven. Why? Jesus isn't just a man or a prophet. He's not just giving us opinions. He's giving us the authoritative truth of his word. If ever you find yourselves in times of adversity, even pressures of intense persecution or suffering, you can hold on to this encouragement that when you look to God's word, it is a source of encouragement. The word encouragement is the word to place courage inside of you. There's something wonderful about those times of hardship and you meet with the people of God or you just spend time in a devotional time and you start opening up the word and it starts to encourage you. There's nothing more beautiful, I think, in regards to worship when the people of God gather together and those who are facing great suffering, intense suffering, adversities of many kinds, and yet they can still sing the praises of God, singing the word of God. That's a beautiful thing indeed. And he says, I'm going to encourage you with my word most assuredly. Not only does he encourage them with his word, he also encourages them by predicting their suffering, the inevitability of their sorrow. Jesus says the reason he's predicting these things back in chapter 15 is not to shake up their faith, but to, but to strengthen their faith, knowing that he knows that this is what they're going to go through, but they can hold on to these promises. Um, verse 20, most assuredly I say to you that you will weep and lament. Why? Because Jesus is going to die on a cross. Jesus is going to be arrested, falsely accused, and condemned to death on a Roman cross. And then he's going to hang there. And then he's going to die. And then he's going to be buried. And during that time and those three days in the grave, his disciples are going to weep. And his disciples are going to lament. And then it says, but the world will rejoice. Why? Why did the world rejoice when Christ was crucified and dead in the grave for three days? Because they thought Christ had been defeated. This is the greatest comeback story of all time. Christ was in the grave three days. It looked like he was forever defeated. But three days later, Christ rose in newness of life. And having predicted their sorrow, 
he predicts their joy. Because who is Jesus? Jesus is the one who promises to fill us with fullness of joy. Jesus is the one who promises that although sorrow is inevitable, Jesus is the one who will transform our sorrow and our suffering into fullness of joy. Yes, suffering is inevitable in this fallen world we live in. Even pressures of persecution. But we can be reminded of this, that in Christ, that suffering doesn't compare to the future eternal glory found in Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. He says, but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. Underline that because that's a promise. The next time you find yourself in the face of adversity, suffering because of a fallen world we live in, and of course this is in the context of suffering for the cause of Christ, you can remember the truth there in God's word. May it encourage you, strengthen you, may you hold on to it, that he is the one in the midst of my suffering and my sorrow, is the one who gives me fullness of joy in him. Not found in entertainment, not found in relationships that we have in this world. Even those, those are fulfilling and God blesses us with those. Fullness of joy is found in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus goes on to illustrate that. If, if you want to know what it's like to experience sorrow for a moment and then to experience such joy that you forget about the previous sorrow, think about a woman in labor. We've got some women here today who have gone through the pain and the suffering of child labor. And every woman will tell you, I'm sure, that that suffering is intense. That pain is excruciating. And the text describes it that way. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because the hour has come. It's intense. It is excruciating. But then it says, but as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for that human being has been born into the world because of the new life that has been born. Doesn't matter how intense the suffering. Doesn't matter how intense the persecution. The worst the world can do is to kill you for following Jesus Christ, but even being martyred for your faith temporarily doesn't compare to the eternal glory of heaven when we will be in the presence of God and his people forever and ever, where our sorrow will be turned into fullness of joy, where our temporary suffering will be no more. Yes, it's a painful. Yes, it's excruciating, but wow, heaven is amazing. Our problem is, in the face of any adversity or struggles or suffering we experience, is, is, is we ask God, just take it away. God, I don't want to endure this. I don't want to go through this. It's painful. It's, it's difficult. But God says, you forget it, how sweet heaven is. Because the, most, the more bitter sorrow, sorrow and suffering tastes, just imagine how much sweeter heaven with God and his people forever and ever is. No more pain. Whoa. No more suffering. No more death. 
You face adversity and struggles in this world. It will be no more. Christ has defeated the grave. He has defeated sin. No longer do I have to struggle with my fleshly desires that I hate, that I want to put to death. God, I want to do good. I do what is wrong. God, I'm struggling. What a wonderful thing to be reminded in heaven that flesh will be no more. Heaven is amazing. I don't think we talk about it enough or think about it or consider it in light of who God is. And so that's a, the illustration of, of joy. And, and, and the fullness of joy is also described in, in the context of answered prayer. If we keep reading, it says, it says in, in verse 21, a woman, when she has labor, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy of the human being has been born into the world. Verse 22, therefore you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. No one can take it. Verse 23, and in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. What day are we talking about when Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father? He departs from them. He gives them the Holy Spirit. That he will not be there on earth so that they can ask him. And so he says, in that day you will ask me nothing. They have the Holy Spirit that indwells them. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. So if we said it before because Jesus has said this before, whatever you ask in Jesus' name, he will give it to you. It's not a magical formula, right? In Jesus' name, I pray for a Ferrari, right? Pray that's going to be outside and millions of dollars appear in it, you know, in my glove compartment. No, when we pray in Jesus' name, it's not a magical formula. But when we pray in his name, it's a representation of all that he is. And so when we pray in the name of Jesus, we're praying in accordance with the will of his word. So if you want to know who Jesus is, open up his word. And if you want to know what his will is, pray his word. This is the joy that is promised to the believer. If you will pray in accordance with the name of Jesus, in accordance with his will, this is your promise. You have what you've asked, and that is what will fill you with joy. This is shared in the context of intense suffering. These disciples are going to watch their Savior suffer and die. They're going to go through, through a crazy amount of days. Worse for Jesus, right? But in the midst of all that they're going to go through, even when Jesus departs and they face their own suffering because they're connected with Christ, they're going to be hated and they're going to be persecuted by the world. History tells us that all of the disciples except for one of them was martyred for their faith. And so it's an incredible thing to consider that all that they're going to experience is intense suffering, but this is the promise that they can hold on to and we can hold on to that Jesus is the one who turns our sorrow into joy. That when we pray to him because we are in Christ, we have the assurance of that our prayers will be answered. Anyone lack joy? Anyone going through a hardship in life and saying, God, I don't understand why I can't even enjoy life. Jesus doesn't promise you happiness. We often say happiness is dependent on happenings. When happenings are going well, I'm doing well. When happenings are not going well, I'm not going well. But joy is dependent not on the external problems or pain. It's dependent on the internal presence of Christ through the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And when you are so connected with Christ, 
And you're walking with him and talking with him. This is not just a religion. This is a relationship. And he's with you in the middle of the storm. You're in the boat. It's shaking. You don't know what's going on. You can trust him. And in that moment, experience fullness of joy. The first promise that we are to hold on to in difficult times, in times of adversity, is Jesus is the one who promises us fullness of joy to transform our sorrow and most intense suffering into eternal joy. And the joy of the Lord doesn't compare to the temporary suffering, even the most intense kind that you and I will ever face. If I could give us some takeaways, the first one would be this. Receive fullness of joy today, right now, by receiving Christ as your Savior and your Lord. You will never experience the joy of the Lord described in our text apart from a personal relationship with Jesus. This is not a promise to the unbeliever. This is a promise to the one who sees their need for forgiveness, who admits their need for their sins to be forgiven and to acknowledge that Jesus is the only answer and, to, and the one who's going to abandon all other options I can't work my way into his favor. I can't rely on my religious or activity or ritual to get me into heaven. I've got to trust in Christ and him crucified. And when you do, you will experience genuine fullness of joy. Secondly, receive fullness of joy by receiving the truth of God's word. In times of suffering, in times of adversity, may God's word be your comfort. Thirdly, receive fullness of joy by adopting the right perspective. Why is that, why is that woman willing to put up with so much in the face of labor? <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but my wife, I don't know if she'd be willing to put up with that much pain for me. But for our ch children, certainly. I mean, what comes after is the, the joy of new life. Have the right perspective. It don't matter how bad things get here. It's going to be great up there. Uh, fourthly, receive fullness of joy by enjoying the benefit of answered prayer. Let me open it up for discussion here. How should knowing we have the assurance of answered prayer affect how we pray and how frequently we do it? If we have the assurance of, 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 of answered prayer, and when we pray in the name of Jesus, what difference would that make in our personal prayer lives? And what difference would that make in the life of our church? Anyone want to share? If you knew that your prayers were going to be answered, what would that change for you in regards to your prayer life or mine? Yeah. Yeah, I'd be doing it more often. Yeah. 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 And if we don't do it often, we, we don't experience the joy of the Lord because joy is found in the assurance of answered prayer. Yeah. Yeah. What else would change? Let's dream a little bit, right? Like, we really believe... Prayers will be answered. Yes, Steve.
I'm believing in the power of prayer to pray for others, and God's going to answer according to his will. Yeah. So it would, it would increase our frequency of prayer. I've heard that. And uh, our, our prayer lives in regards to intercession and praying for others. What else would change for you? I mean, let's talk practically here. I mean, if you knew your prayers are going to be answered, when you pray in Jesus' name, how, what, is some, what would you do differently? Or would you, would you change? Yeah, here. Yeah, so faith becomes alive. It's not just an idea or something we read about. Our faith is, is realized. Yeah, yeah, Larry. The only thing is Jesus tells us, or we're commanded to pray continuously. So it's, uh, it's, it's uh, continuously ask, make the request known before the Lord. And, but that's, a, that's a, a good thought, I think. For me, I was thinking about it. I'd, I'd uh, write down all of my prayer requests more consistently. And after I wrote down the prayer request, I would mark the date when God answered it. And boy, would I celebrate it. Hey, listen, we've been praying for our neighbor, and we've been praying for this, we've been praying for that, and Jesus answered our prayer. We're going out to dinner tonight. We're going to celebrate. We're going to experience fullness of joy. It changed our prayer meetings. Um, yeah, Charlie. Yeah. And I think that's a good reminder. We wouldn't just pray like these little prayers, but God, God empowered prayers, like only a prayer that God can answer. Like it wasn't me, it wasn't my talent, it wasn't human effort, it was God Almighty. Listen, that's the promise here. The promise is, is of answered prayer, and the answered prayer is the key to the experiencing fullness of joy. When you pray in the name of Jesus in accordance with his will, you have the assurance that you will receive what you prayed for, and that should make us rejoice, make us rethink our prayer lives a little bit. 
Um, fifthly, receive fullness of joy by declaring the promise to those who need it and those who need to be reminded of it. Is there anyone in your life experiencing sorrow and be, need, that needs to be reminded Jesus turned sorrow into joy? Unbelievers and believers, because if they're unbeliever, if they trust in him, in Christ and him crucified, he'll turn their sorrow into joy. If you're a believer and you're in the face of adversity and you're struggling, make sure you remind yourself of this promise. Hold on to it. Don't let it go. Stand upon the promises of God that he's the one who transforms your sorrow into joy. Uh, Can I ask this? How would you describe what it's like to experience the joy of the Lord in times of sorrow or or times of adversity? Have you been there and, and... I don't know about you, but even as a believer, as a Christian, I see some, some believers going through hard times, diagnosis, hardship in life, adversity, and, and I sometimes wonder, because, you know, sometimes thinking in the flesh, how in the world are they full of joy in the midst of their suffering? How do you explain that? How would you explain it through things you've gone through? What would you share with an unbeliever who was like, wow, that's something else? Yeah, Charlie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so times of suffering, it's that right perspective uh, in light of eternity. Wow, the eternal joys of glory are going to be incredible. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Annie. Yeah. 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 How would you describe his faithfulness in those hard times? What does that look like? Oh, yeah. So just the assurance of his presence and you look back and the assurance that he was working the whole time and his faithfulness is sure. Yes. Yeah. yeah anyone else would, would describe this faithfulness? How about to a fellow believer who, who, who uh, wants to experience this joy but you know, you want to testify. Listen, there is truly joy in the Lord if you, if you, if you turn to him. Anyone else? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. That's so good. Go back to his word. There are certain scriptures that, that hold true in those most difficult times, and God enlightened you to that, those truths, and it, it's a great blessing. I liked what Steve was saying because he was saying you can take it to the bank. This is a good one because the next time you experience sorrow, maybe you're in the face of adversity, you can 
take it to the bank. You can take your sorrow before a sovereign God and say, God, turn my sorrow into joy. Give me the right perspective. Let me be reminded of your faithfulness. Let me trust that you are good and your word is true. And he will do it. His promises are true, Steve. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing how desperation leads us to pray, how desperation leads people to Jesus, and in times of great desperation, what an opportunity to point to Jesus to say, he'll turn your sorrow into eternal, full joy. That's unimaginable. That's the promise of the Lord. And so first, the promise of the fullness of joy. Jesus will turn your suffering, your sorrow into joy. That's a promise you can hold on to. That's a promise you can stand upon. There are times when you can't understand the circumstances of life or the adversities you're facing, even pressures of persecution, but you can trust in that promise. You can also trust in the promise of his love. His love. Yeah, Bruce. So not just having an earthly perspective, but a heavenly one. Uh, we, we tend to wake up and see what we see, and it's hard to look past that. But prayer is a great means to do that. God's word is a great means to do that, to look past the adversity. Um, and so the assurance of joy, the promise of love, verse 25, he says, this, these things I have spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. Now, Jesus has been talking to his disciples, preparing them, encouraging them, instructing them, and he's preparing them for what lies ahead of them, right? And even in this discourse, he, if you remember, has spoken in figurative language. He's spoken in figurative language throughout his ministry when He's with his disciples, and he leaves the table. You remember. And he takes off his outer garment, puts on the, the, the garment of, of the least-ranked servant in the room, and then he, he, he starts to get down on his knees and wash the disciples' feet one by one. Peter says, whoa, not me, Jesus, not me. And Jesus says, unless I wash your feet, you have no part in me. Jesus wasn't just talking literally about feet. He was talking about our hearts. Jesus was saying, if I don't wash your heart, 
you have no part in me. And Peter says, wash all of me. No, if, if I wash this part, you, all of it, all of you is clean. And then Jesus says, as I've washed your feet, wash one another's feet. How many people's feet you wash this week? I don't know about you, not too many. Why? Because we're not just talking about washing one another's feet, even though it's a great metaphor, and sometimes we might be doing that in Christian circles because it, it, it paints the imagery of what Christ has done, but it really means serve one another as I've served you. Serve one another as the least-ranked servant in the room. As I've washed your feet, wash one another's feet. Jesus uses all these kinds of figurative language. They don't understand fully what is going on, but they will eventually. And Jesus says, I'm going to speak to you plainly. How? Through the Holy Spirit that indwells them. The helper, the spirit of truth who convicts the world of sin, of, of righteousness, of, of judgment. The, the spirit of truth that guides and leads us in, in truth. We read about that in the first 15 verses. In verse 26, In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you. What Jesus is saying, uh, is, is not denying the fact that he intercedes on our behalf, but what he is saying there is, you don't need to go through me to talk to the Father. You've got direct access. Now, elsewhere in Scripture, we know like Romans 8.34, Jesus intercedes for us. It says, Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us? Isn't it good to know Jesus prays for you, intercedes on your behalf? But what he's saying here is you don't even have to go through Christ by talking to Jesus to talk to the Father. You can have direct access to the Father when you pray in the name of Jesus, you don't have to go to a priest. You don't have to come to me and confess your sins. You don't have to kiss my ring. All you have to do is come to the Father through Jesus. You've got direct access to him. And here's the promise. It's the promise that the Father loves you. When you face adversity and hardship and struggle, what's the question? God, where are you at? God, do you even care about me? God, why me? Why not them? <laughs> you know, I'm living righteously. I'm living rightly. You got a guy like Job who's like, I haven't done anything wrong. His friends are like, you got to have done something wrong if this is the suffering you're experiencing. Now, this is the reminder in the face of adversity. This is the, the, the promise that we're given. Verse 20, 27. For the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I have come forth from God. I want you to know if you're here today, whatever you're going through, God loves you. God loves you. He cares about you. Even if you're facing some intense adversity and you say, God, do you really love me? Do you even care? Do you even acknowledge the current state of, of my life right now? God loves you. He cares for you. He acknowledges what's in your heart. He acknowledges the suffering and the sorrow that you may experience. The Father loves you. But who has the assurance of the Father's love? Jesus tells us. He says the one who has the assurance of the Father's love is the one who loves Jesus and believes what? And believes he came forth from the Father. If you ever question God's love for you because of the circumstances of life or the adversities you experience, ask yourself this question, do I love Jesus? Secondly, ask your question, yourself the question, do I believe that Jesus came from 
the Father. Verse 28 is a summation of the work of Christ through his life, death, burial, resurrection. Verse 28 tells us who has this assurance. I came forth from the Father. This is speaking of Christ who is the eternal one because it speaks of his deity. Who comes from heaven? No one but God. Jesus is God. He says, I have come forth from the Father and have come into the world. Sounds like his incarnation. Deity wrapped in humanity, born mysteriously as a babe born in a manger. He lived and then he started his ministry. He died. He was raised in newness of life and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. Who is the one who has the assurance of the Father's love? The one who loves Jesus and the one who believes in what he accomplished through his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. How do I know I love Jesus? Jesus told us. He says, if you love me, do what I tell you. If you're walking in obedience to the will of God in light of the word of God, you are showing your love for Jesus. When you walk in obedience to his will, informed by his word, you are showing your love for Jesus. And you're also showing your love for Jesus and are assured of the Father's love when you say, I believe that Jesus came from heaven to earth. He lived a perfect life for me because I'm going to receive his righteousness on the cross. And he died on the cross for me. Three days later, he was raised in newness of life and he goes back to the Father. I believe in the gospel. That's the good news. The good news is all about Jesus who came, who died, who was buried, third day rose again in newness of life and offers salvation, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, the abundant life in Christ, the promise of joy, the promise of love. In a moment, the promise of peace. This is the assurance of love that you and I have been given. I came forth from the Father. I have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. Can I encourage you to hold on to the promise of his love? To stand on the promise of his love. You are loved and you have that assurance based on your confession in who Christ is. Can I give us a number of takeaways here? The first one is receive God's love in Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever should believe in him shouldn't perish but have everlasting life. God loves you. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, Romans 5, 8, that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. Can you tell someone that Jesus loves them? Yes, you can, because of what he accomplished on that cross. And can you know who has the assurance of the Father's love, those who have genuinely trusted in Christ? Secondly, express thanksgiving for the assurance of God's love. I need to wake up in the morning and say, Father, thank you that you love me. Not just because you created me, but because Christ died for me. Thank you for the assurance of my Father's love. And this day might be difficult, but I can know this. This is the assurance that I have. This is the promise that I'm standing upon because of my confession of faith in Jesus. Next time someone comes to your door and 
introduces to you a Jesus of, of a different Jesus than you hear in the Bible, Jehovah's Witness, the Mormon, you can take them back to verse 28 and ask them, do you believe in the truth of his incarnation? Do you believe in the truth of his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Is he God, deity wrapped in humanity, who accomplished what he did on that cross for you and These are important things to know about Jesus because it assures us of his love. Thirdly, rest in the assurance of God's love. We're invited to rest in it. I'm not enemies of God. It's a scary thing when you're an enemy of God, when you stand in opposition to God, but all sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven. What an assurance we have. Fourthly, share God's love with those who need it or need to be reminded of it. Um, can I ask you this? How has God reminded you of his love in times of adversity or in times of intense suffering? Yeah? Anyone want to share? Where, where he just gives you that nudge or that assurance, I love you. It may be hard, it may be difficult, but I love you. How, how has God reminded you of his love in those difficult times? Anyone want to share? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's it's beyond even human comprehension. It's just that the presence of God that reminds you he's there and he loves you. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone else share how you've experienced God's love in those hard times? Just a reminder, God's holding you. He's taking care of you. He loves you. Yeah, so good. Thank you, Kathy, for sharing that. Yeah, God reminds us of his love for us, especially in those times of adversity. Um, one more question on, on, on love. When you think of sharing your, the love of God with unbelievers, how do you turn conversations towards spiritual things? Anything that you can use questions you can ask to turn conversations towards spiritual things and introduce people to the love of God demonstrated through Christ's death on the cross. 
Uh, you're talking to a neighbor, a family member, a friend, a coworker, anything you can say. I've got a few. I can share them, but I want to hear your, like, how do you turn conversations towards spiritual things? Like, that's what we're supposed to do, right? We're supposed to uh, talk to people about the love of Jesus. Any just key questions you ask to just open it up? Yes, Steve. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So just listen, listen, yeah, yeah. Anything else? Any other things? Open conversations towards spiritual things. Yes, Harold. Oh yeah. You don't have to live that way anymore. Uh, God offers you a better solution. It's found in Christ. Yeah. Well, I'd really like you guys to think about that because sometimes you come to faith and you forget why you came in the first place, right? Like what, what's so appealing about the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on your behalf that you would not just desire to tell people about his love, but how would you turn those conversations toward those things? Empowered by the Holy Spirit, of course. Yeah, I wrote down some. Do you ever think about spiritual things? Do you believe there is an afterlife? If you were to die today, would you go to heaven or hell? Do you believe in either of those? Is religion important to you? Do you consider yourself a, a religious person? People open up. Has there ever been a moment that was life-changing for you? Where do you turn when something sad or hard happens in your life? It's kind of what we were talking here. How do you think the world began? That's a good question. A lot of conversation there. First, the, the promises that we've been given that we can stand upon is the promise of joy, fullness of joy. He turned sorrow into joy. The promise of his love, thirdly, as we wrap up, the promise of his peace. The promise of his peace. Verse 29, his disciples said to him, because he just told them, hey, I've talked to you figuratively before. Now I'm speaking plainly to you. They say, see now, you are speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Thanks, Jesus. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. I want you to know they are very sincere in this moment. They don't understand everything. But they are expressing the sincerity of their hearts to Jesus. And Jesus, in a gracious but bold, straightforward way, answers and asks them this question, Do you now believe? Now, he's not going to predict their abandonment of him in order to condemn them, but to convict them. Not to shake up their faith, but to strengthen their faith. That even in the midst of their failure, they can still have his peace. That's the third promise. Not just the promise that he turns sorrow into joy. Not just the promise of the Father's love who believe in Jesus and love Jesus, but the promise of peace even in the face of failure. This is what Jesus predicts about them. He says 
indeed the hour is coming, yes, has come, that you all will be scattered. You're going to abandon me, each to his own, and will leave me alone. Peter, who said, I would never leave you, Jesus, is going to deny Jesus three times. And Jesus says, and yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. Even if all should leave you and all should abandon you, God is still with you. Let me bring to you Zechariah 13.7. This is a fulfillment of Scripture. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little one. Matthew 26.56 speaks of this fulfillment. And all this was done that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and... Let. But Jesus, in the face of their failure, gives them this promise. He says, the Father's with me. Verse 33, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. You may have peace. And then he says this, in the world you will. doesn't say you might. You will have tribulation, pressures, from the world because you are connected to Jesus Christ, your Savior and Lord. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. That's a promise you can hold on to. That's a promise, as Steve said, you can take to the bank. It doesn't matter how intense the adversity, it doesn't matter how, how overwhelming the suffering. You can believe this that he will give you peace. Now, what it says here is is the promise of tribulation, but also the offer of peace. Where does the world seek peace? You ever go to a a counselor or somebody in the world and ask you, hey, I'm anxious, I'm worried all the time. (laughs) I'm just overwhelmed by life struggles and hardships. Where can I find peace? The world goes meditation. Right? You go to a yoga session, you know, say some, say some things, meditate for a couple hours. But the only problem with meditation is after you're done, it's, problems are still there. Worries are still undealt with. Peace is not there. Well, I, I, go, I go find peace in, 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 in substance abuse. I go to turn to alcohol. I, I may turn to the addiction of my choice, food. Now, Jesus says, I will give you peace. Where do you find peace? You find it in Christ. Abandon all the other alternatives. Abandon all the other things that you've been looking for. Anyone worried? Anyone anxious? Anyone overwhelmed by the struggles of life? Jesus says, in me you will have peace. You will face tribulation in this world, but behold, I have overcome the world. Jesus says, I am the victor. I have defeated sin. I have defeated death. I have defeated Satan. Hear these promises. In Christ, he promises to transform your sorrow into joy. Hear that. He promises you the Father's love for those who trust in Christ and love Jesus. You have the assurance of the Father's love. And he promises, even in the face of your failure and mine, even if we should scatter and leave him, we can be reminded if we truly trust him and we know him as our Savior and our Lord, we have the assurance of his peace even in the face of failure. What a mighty God we serve. Let me close us in prayer. Father, uh, we thank you for the promises that you give us in your word. Father, these are promises we need to be reminded of every day. 
Our failures often show themselves in pride and in independence from you, Lord. We think we can do it on our own. We turn to alternatives, to Jesus, to meet our needs, to meet our need for, for happiness that is found in happenings, but the reality is the only one who can fill that is Jesus who gives us fullness of joy. We pray that we would abandon all the alternatives and find joy in Christ regardless of the circumstances we face. Father, we have a tendency to, to, to seek love and affirmation. And look, we talk about self-esteem a lot in this world, but may we abandon the pursuit of self-esteem for the sake of seeking your love for us and finding value and who Christ is and what he accomplished on our behalf on the cross. And Father, I pray right now for your peace, for anyone who needs it, a peace that transcends all understanding. Yes, we know in this world we will face tribulation, but we rejoice that Jesus has overcome the world and in the face of our failures, give us that peace. Father, we thank you for these promises. And as we leave this place, may they stick in our minds and may they be savored in our hearts. And may they be realized as we place our, put our faith into action. We pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.